Good afternoon. It is an honor and a pleasure to introduce Admiral Retired Harry Harris, who also has the title of Ambassador Harry Harris. Harry Harris is a careerist in service to the United States. He spent 40 years of military service in the United States Navy. And then, after three days out, he returned, but to diplomatic service after Senate confirmation as U.S. Ambassador to Korea. He's a man of significant firsts in his long career. First Asian ambassador, Asian American ambassador to hold four-star rank in the Navy. He commanded the U.S. Pacific Command, PACOM, from 2015 to 2018. He is the first four-star from the Navy's Maritime Patrol Aviation Community. And prior to U.S. PACOM, he commanded the U.S. Pacific Fleet. His naval career spans service in all, all the geographic areas in important operational commands. They include U.S. Sixth Fleet, Striking and Support Forces, NATO. Joint Task Force Guantanamo Patrol and Reconnaissance Control Wing Number 1 and Patrol Quadrant 6. He participated in operations, let me tick them off, Attain Document, Libya in 1986, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Southern Watch, Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, Willing Spirit, the 2008 Colombian hostage recovery, Odyssey Dawn, Libya, 2011. And I'd like to note this too, in 2007-8, he was Director of Operations at the U.S. Southern Command, where I served at one time, with uh, Combatant Commander Admiral Jim Stavirgis. This naval aviator has flown over 4,400 hours, including over 400 combat operations. And Ambassador Harris was steeped in the Washington political military security milieu as well. He was representative of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. He traveled to 80 countries participating in the Secretary's meetings with nearly all foreign leaders. And he served as U.S. roadmap monitor for the Middle East peace process. His personal decorations from the Navy, the State Department, the Defense Department, and Asia-Pacific governments and militaries are, well, they're numerous. He was born in Japan and reared in Tennessee and Florida, graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1978. He holds master's degrees from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and Georgetown School of Foreign Service. He did postgraduate studies at Oxford and he completed the Seminar 21 Fellowship at MIT. Admiral Harris's father served in the U.S. Navy, was a World War II and Korean War veteran stationed in Korea and Japan after World War II until he retired in 1958. His mother was, a, was Japanese, moved to Tennessee with her husband and young son in 1958 and became a U.S. citizen in 1974. Admiral Harris is married to Mrs. Bruni Bradley, herself a career naval officer, graduate of the academy. I would like to offer a personal word from my Southeast Asia perspective. 
As the president of the U.S. Philippine Society over these past nine years, Admiral Harris has been very much on our radar. As commander of the U.S. Pacific Command and the, and the fleet, Admiral Harris forged an effective partnership with the Philippines in support of American interests at a time of rising Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea. He's, uh, his support of the 2014 Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement with the Philippines helped ensure that the fleet had access to facilities as it conducted freedom of navigation operations. Those operations challenged China's broad nine-dash line claims that were overruled at the United Nations Arbitration Court in 2016. With his steady hand on the tiller, Admiral Harris strengthened U.S.-Philippine security cooperation under our mutual defense treaty in meeting the challenges in the vital South China Sea region. And he fostered closer, closer cooperation with the Philippines and all the other Southeast Asian countries in meeting threats from the expansion of international terrorism. Then, from the highest levels of military command in the Pacific, he agreed to serve as ambassador to South Korea, a vitally important diplomatic posting reflecting the importance of Northeast Asia and our long-standing bilateral relationship. The Korean Peninsula is where the major powers, China, Russia, Japan, and the United States converge, where 20,000 U.S. troops are stationed as part of our commitment to preserve peace in the face of continuing threats from nuclear-armed North Korea. South Korea is the world's 12th largest economy, a major commercial partner with a bilateral free trade agreement that requires careful diplomatic handling. South Korea's lively democracy also frames the relationship in terms of how political leaders in Seoul approach inter-Korean ties and broader foreign policies. All this and more makes the ambassador's role as consequential as in any posting in the world. He returned from Seoul in January. We are delighted that he is here today to share his experiences and his expertise with us. Ambassador Harris. Thanks, uh, Ambassador Maestro, for that kind uh, introduction and detailed introduction. Uh, it's quite an honor for me to participate in this event uh, and to be moderated by Ambassador John Maestro, a legend in Latin American uh, and Southeast Asian affairs, and certainly one of the few ambassadors uh, to hold the distinction of being both a career and a non-career ambassador. Though I prefer the term citizen diplomat to non-career, the latter seems somehow unseemly to me. So good afternoon, council and fellow ambassadors, especially those with whom I went through the ambassador seminar back in the summer of 2018, and those I served with uh, uh, over the past few years uh, in the Indo-Pacific and others like Dave Shear, uh, for joining from out there in cyberspace. In public speaking, uh, we're taught uh, never to lead with an apology, but I'm gonna do so anyway. I'm sorry for not having a lot of eye candy behind me. Uh, you know, bookcases full of books, uh, memorabilia and the like. Uh, this is all I have behind me. Uh, my wife and I arrived here to our new home in Colorado just a month ago, and I'm barely able to get myself looking presentable, let alone my office. Now, I can't think of a better way to begin the new year and my post-government life 
than to share with you my thoughts on the alliance between the United States and the Republic of Korea or ROK. Before I get started, I would like to say a few words on the deplorable events of January 6th in Washington, so you understand my perspective. Uh, the violent actions of the mob that attacked the US Capitol and attack on American democracy itself serve as a sharpest reminder of America's challenges, but also America's ultimate strength, resilience, and longstanding commitment uh, to democracy. I take hope from Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem uh, that our nation, quote, isn't broken, but simply unfinished, unquote. So President Joe Biden is now the 46th Commander in Chief of the United States. I emphasize to my interlocutors in Seoul before I left that the noble work of the Alliance would continue. And I express my confidence that President Biden and his team will continue to work with leaders there to strengthen the relationship in all its dimensions, not just the security dimension. Paraphrasing Goethe, divide and rule is one approach to governments and unite and lead is another. Now, as I've said on countless occasions in uniform and in mufti, relationships matter and alliances matter. They are the most integral element of US foreign policy. The almost 71 year US ROK alliance was forged during a devastating conflict. It has stood the test of time. It's mind boggling to consider how much has changed in the world in general, Northeast Asia in particular, and the Korean Peninsula especially since 1950. Some changes have been for the better, such as the ROK's miraculous growth into an economic and cultural powerhouse, a high-tech innovation nation, which is leading by example in the battle against COVID-19. As you may have heard, South Korea faced a third wave of COVID-19 outbreaks at the end of 2020, centered in the capital and surrounding areas. Korea went on virtual lockdown when they had a thousand cases a day across a country of 52 million people. As of today, Korea has experienced a total, a total of about 90,000 cases and 1,600 deaths since the pandemic began. Contrast those numbers with ours. Korea's approach on COVID-19 has been lauded and rightly so as a global model. It's not that complicated. Follow the rules and follow the science. Now other changes have been for the worse, such as North Korea's unrelenting pursuit of nuclear weapons. While the DPRK may not be the ROK's official enemy, so to speak, it's helpful to recall that during the January 8th Workers' Party Congress, Kim Jong-un talked about strengthening North Korea's nuclear deterrent and military capabilities. Just yesterday, the IAEA expressed real concerns about the trajectory of North Korea's nuclear program. But throughout the years, the US-ROK alliance has remained and continues to be the bulwark against North Korean aggression and the linchpin upon which regional security and stability stand. There's a satellite photo out there someplace of a nighttime view of the Korean Peninsula. This photo and the stark contrast between the beaming south and the pitch black north represents choices and their outcomes. What 67 years of our strategic alliance has brought to the people of the Republic of Korea. As the ROK has changed and developed over the years, so too has the US ROK Alliance. This alliance is dynamic, a multi-dimensional partnership reinforced by shared values, 
shared concerns and shared economic interests underpinned by the deepest of people to people ties. It's lasted generations and will continue to thrive for generations to come as long as we together nurture it, resource it, and remain committed to it. There are now over 2 million Americans of Korean descent, including four members of Congress, senior officials in our military, US diplomats, state and federal government officials, entertainers, and wildly successful business leaders. American music and movies have long been popular in the ROK, but now Korea is a cultural force in the USA and around the world. These strong and growing people-to-people -people ties not only constitute the essential fabric of our dynamic bilateral relationship, but also provide the resilience for us to overcome any and all challenges together. Naturally, there are disagreements within the USROK Alliance, which is to be expected in any co-equal partnership spanning seven decades. The US and the ROK continue to work at the highest levels on issues such as defense burden sharing and the future command structure of Korean and American forces on the peninsula as envisioned by the transition of wartime operational control or OPCON. Now the US is fully committed to this alliance and it stands firmly with the ROK. So I believe that the outlook for the US ROK alliance is good. This is important because as you are all well aware, North Korea and the PRC will continuously test the resolve of this alliance and will seek ways to weaken our strong ties and sow doubt in order to divide us. Now, while we hope for diplomacy with North Korea to be successful, we all recognize that hope alone is not a course of action. The US and ROK Joint Military Training is designed to support peace on the peninsula and in the region, while ensuring that we maintain readiness and never let our guard down. The quest for dialogue with the North must not be made at the expense of the ability to respond to threats from the North. Dialogue and military readiness must go hand in hand. Idealism must be rooted in realism. There are ample historic examples of what could transpire, including what happened on that fateful day 71 years ago, if we're not ready. Just read T.R. Fairbanks, this kind of war, if you remain skeptical. It's unfortunate that North Korea has not embraced the opportunity presented by the three U.S. and three ROK presidential summits. The U.S. continues to seek transformed relations between Washington and Pyongyang, lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula and the complete denuclearization of North Korea, all of which were agreed in Singapore in 2018 and together will set the conditions for a brighter future for the North Korean people. Well, I believe that Singapore was not a perfect agreement, it's a good starting point for which to pursue peace on the peninsula. I hope that Chairman and now General Secretary Kim Jong-un seizes the opportunity. And now a word about the People's Republic of China. I'm often asked about whether the ROK is being forced to choose between its security ally and its number one trading partner. This is a false narrative designed to sow doubt about the history and the strength of our alliance. The U.S. has partnered well with China on several important fronts, but the United States and Beijing fundamentally disagree on how to approach the current international order. The Chinese government doesn't keep its word from its treaty with the British on Hong Kong to its human rights abuses 
against the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and others to its attempts at commercial espionage and its quest to first isolate and then dominate Taiwan. As former Assistant Secretary of State Dave Stilwell recently said, the Leninist Politburo that runs China wants to set the rules for the whole world, which is why it's essential that free nations exercise vigilance. This is why that we've made it very clear through the Indo-Pacific strategy that the US rejects foreign policy based on leverage and dominance and seeks instead to strengthen relationships based on respect, equal footing and, and fair exchange. We believe in partnership economics. We won't weaponize death. Instead, we strive to build environments that foster good, productive market economies. We encourage every country to work in its own interests to protect its own sovereignty. As the former Secretary of State said, China's bullying in the South China Sea reflects a broader choice for nations in that region, coercion and control of freedom and the rule of law. Now, while the how-to regarding dealing with Beijing will certainly change with the Biden administration, I note that the fundamental understanding of the PRC has not. Consider the Secretary of State Blinken testified at his confirmation hearing that the previous administration's tougher approach is right, that what's happening in Xinjiang is genocide, and that democracy is being trampled in Hong Kong. Secretary of Defense Austin testified that he's focused on the pacing threat posed by the PRC, and he promised strong support for Taiwan. I wonder if they'll be declared persona non grata by Beijing. To protect the maritime domain, the U.S. will continue to cooperate with Indo-Pacific partners as we've always done to maintain freedom of navigation and other lawful uses of the sea so that all nations can act access and benefit from the maritime commons. In this time of COVID, there's a concern that the PRC is taking advantage of the region's focus on fighting the pandemic to coerce its neighbors and press its provocative claims in the South China Sea as well as to bully Taiwan. There are also concerns that the PRC will exploit nations in need of assistance by dangling medical aid in exchange for support of PRC's talking points. We must remain vigilant. I believe the President Moon's new Southern policy for expanding engagement with South and Southeast Asia under the pillars of people, peace and prosperity comports well civic strategy in this area where our two nations can work closely together as we move forward together. Now, since the end of World War II, the network of US alliances and partnerships have been at the core of a stable Indo-Pacific region. No country can shape the future of the region in isolation and no vision for the region is complete without a robust network of sovereign countries working together to secure their collective interests. So let me highlight the importance of trilateral cooperation between the US, the ROK, and Japan. It's crucial for our three nations to work together to enhance our security cooperation and preserve the international rules-based order. Notwithstanding the current tensions between Seoul and Tokyo, the reality is that no important economic issue in the region can be addressed without both the ROKs and Japan's active involvement. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me finish by saying that I was given an amazing chance to be the ambassador to Korea. Though some of you would beg to differ, I believe that there's no better place to serve as the US ambassador 
and no better partner or strategic ally for the United States than the Republic of Korea. Thank you very much and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Harris. You covered the waterfront, <laughs> but I'm going to take advantage of my moderator's role <laughs> and ask you to, to, I'm going to probe a little bit more. And I'd like to do that on China. Everybody is talking about China. Uh, there are all sorts of views out there. Here you are in 2021, after having served so many years in the Pacific. Um, could you dig in a little bit on whether China and whether the U.S.-China relationship? Yeah, let me just uh, write a few notes down here before I lose my train of thought, which is pretty easy to do. Uh, Ambassador, let me, let me uh, start by saying that I believe that the U.S. wants and seeks uh, an open and constructive, constructive relationship uh, with the PRC. But achieving that relationship requires vigorous defense of our national interests. As I've mentioned in, in my prepared remarks, uh, Washington and Beijing fundamentally disagree on how to approach uh, the international rules-based order. I, I, I believe that there is uh, validity to the idea that decades ago when we opened uh, China or opened, our, uh, opened the door to China, if you want, uh, that we believed that bringing China into uh, the, the world uh, system uh, and bringing China into the elements uh, of the global system would change China. But what has happened in reality, in my view, over time, uh, China has changed uh, the world system to its favor. It hasn't changed at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe it's it's become more true uh, to its uh, Leninist uh, uh, court. So I'll stop there. Uh, I could, you know, go on and on and talk about it. Uh, but I believe that, that uh, we're on uh, divergent paths with China. Uh, I think we should uh, certainly uh, strive to narrow that those differences uh, and to work uh, hard uh, in those areas where we can uh, we can uh, see eye to eye to to use those as uh, underpinnings uh, to work uh, to get at those areas that we fundamentally disagree on. Uh, but today uh, we are in a different place. Uh, than China, and we see that play out globally, and we see that play out in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you. We'll now go into the cycle of questions from um, folks on the call, and I'm going to ask Kathleen Sheehan to uh, step in and field the questions. <laughs> Uh, okay, there's no uh, questions yet, so I would invite uh, members of the audience, if you go to the bottom of your screen and you click on the Q&A, that's where you can write uh, questions in and I'll receive them and read them uh, to our guest. Um, that's, the, that's the best way to send in a question, so I encourage people to do that. 
This might be the easiest Q and A session I've ever done. <laughs> uh, there's one question here, and that is, uh, what do you see the future of the U.S.-China-North Korea dynamic? Well, um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's early days yet uh, in the Biden administration. So uh, unknown uh, where, what the, the trilateral dynamic will be. Uh, you know, uh, South Korea is working hard at, uh, uh, at trying to bring North Korea back to the negotiating table. The U.S. Uh, is undergoing a... Uh, a, uh, uh, a study, though not a long study, a short, a, a short in time study of, of, uh, of our policy uh, toward North Korea. I think that'll be finished soon. Uh, you all in Washington are closer to that than I am. Uh, and then we'll know where we stand with regard to North Korea. We already know where South Korea stands. We don't know where North Korea stands at all. I mean, it's 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 uh, more mysterious uh, now than it has been before because of COVID. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, you know, I'm certainly not smart enough to to be able to predict the trilateral relationship today. Uh, but I think give it a few more weeks, and we'll begin to uh, understand the U.S. policy imperatives on North Korea, uh, and uh, and we're going to have to go from there. All right, now there's some questions coming in now. This one is from uh, Ambassador Jim Gilmore. Uh, it's also North Korea focused, and that is, what is the long-term strategy of the U.S. in approach to North Korea? Is it containment? Well, you know, uh, Ambassador, I, I think that it goes back to uh, the, the fundamental um, um, agreements that were made in Singapore, which is the, you know the the, the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, the transformed uh, relations between the uh, the U.S. Uh, and and, uh, and and North Korea and peace on the peninsula. Uh, I think that those together, as I mentioned in my prepared remarks, uh, uh, sets the course for a brighter economic future for the North Korean people. Uh, but you know, it's up to Kim Jong Un. Uh, you know, to, uh, to, to make the call. Uh, nowhere uh, in, in Singapore or Hanoi or, or the SNAP Summit in Pamujan or other places uh, has the United States called for uh, uh, a, a regime change or anything like that. And, and neither has South Korea uh, in recent times. So I think that there's, there's, there's every opportunity uh, to move forward, uh, and I just don't know, uh, you know, what North Korea will do. I also don't know uh, where, where the Biden administration will begin, right? I mean, it's, it's, it has been uh, past practice where a new administration comes in and North Korea does some uh, large-scale provocation, either in, uh, uh, missile tests or nuclear tests or stuff like that. And the U.S. goes back to, 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 to ground, uh, to, to baseline, and starts over. Well, we have an opportunity now to, to start at some new place, maybe start where Singapore left off. And North Korea hasn't done anything overly provocative 
since January uh, 20th or, or since uh, since the election, really since even before that. So we have an opportunity, uh, but it, I'm, I'm not privy yet to, to where we're going to begin. Um, there's another question. This is from Ambassador Philip Hughes, and he says, North Korea is a complete client of China, yet China seems unable or unwilling to control or restrain North Korea, its nuclear program or its periodic belligerent aggressions against the South. Is it possible that China actually uses North Korea as a cat's paw or a proxy, playing in effect a double game with the U.S., Japan, and South Korea? Uh, yeah, uh, Ambassador, I, I believe that, uh, that you've got it. Just about right. I, I think that 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 it's not it's not about an inability of China to control North Korea. There there is that ele- there is an element of that in there, but it's it's really uh, uh, I like the term cat's ball. I mean it's uh, you know uh, 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 PRC will will uh, will allow uh, if you will North Korea to do things that take our attention away from what the PRC is doing. <laughs> And focus instead on on uh, uh, North Korea. That said, uh, to be honest with you, uh, there are areas in the uh, North Korean space, if you will, that we have partnered well with with uh, the PRC. Uh, one of those is sanctions. You know, the the tough sanctions that we have, uh, I believe, uh, are the principal reason North Korea went to the negotiating table uh, in the first place in 2018 in Singapore. Um, and we wouldn't have those sanctions without the PRC's uh, 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 active agreement, right? Because these aren't American sanctions; these are United Nations sanctions. And so, uh, uh, PRC, just like uh, Russia and others, uh, you know, they have a vote, they have a key vote, they have a veto. And so, the fact that we have sanctions at all uh, is an area that we have worked well uh, with the PRC. Uh, here's a question uh, from uh, Hank Hendrickson saying, can you expand on the role carried out by U.S. forces in the ROK now, relocated to bases away from the DNZ? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but, but I'll take a stab at it. The role of U.S. forces, I'm looking at the question, that's why I'm looking okay. over here. The, I'm, I'm hoping if I stare at it long enough, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll become clear to me. The role of U.S. forces hasn't changed. Uh, we have relocated uh, the, the, the overwhelming bulk of them down to Pyeongtaek, uh, which is about two hours south of Seoul, uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a magnificent uh, $10 billion base city really that the Koreans built out of an open field, a large open field. It's a city really uh, that they built. And in, in return for that, uh, we will uh, give them back Yongsan Garrison, which is you know right in the center of Seoul uh, in a few years. And we're already starting to give parts of it back already. Uh, but the role of US forces in Korea has not changed. Uh, and the role of US forces outside of Korea, the overwhelming majority of them, uh, uh, which would flow into Korea from outside of Korea, not, not from inside of Korea, uh, in, in the case of a no uh, plan execution, uh, has not changed at all. You know, our security commitment to Korea remains 
uh, solid. Uh, and, uh, um, and I don't see any, any change in that. The, the, the how-tos will shift as the opcon transition happens uh, over time. Uh, but the fundamental uh, uh, security parts of our relationship uh, won't change, in my opinion. Uh, here's a question from Ambassador Jason Chung. Um, can you highlight some of the challenges between uh, Japan and Korea and how that impacted your position between these two close allies, especially how it impacted our efforts with the PRC? <laughs> so um, without you know going through the, uh, the historical, uh, all the issues, uh, uh, because I don't want to get too pedantic here, I'll just very briefly talk about it and send the news again just, just today, really, you know, it, it's the, it's the historical conflict between Japan and Korea that started in the early 1900s, 1905, 1910, when, when uh, Japan annexed Korea and made Korea a colony of Japan. It was a brutal colonization. No, 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 no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about that. And that, that lasted until 1945 or so. And in that period, then you have the issues of the comfort women and the forced labor. Uh, and so those issues uh, are playing out today, uh, where South Korea, that, uh, where, uh, where most recently forced labor people were still alive, right? This is, these are men and women from the 1940s and before, but they're still alive, though, though they're dwindling in numbers significantly. Uh, they took it to the South Korean courts and went up th through the system into the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, and uh, they've ordered Japan to, to pay some uh, uh, some kind of reparations. Japan maintains that its treaty with Korea uh, uh, negated uh, all of those claims. So, so there's an issue there. So, uh, when when I got there in in uh, in, in 2018. You know, we were, we were seeing this play out in the security space. So what happened was a historical issue, which we as the United States have encouraged Korea and Japan to work this out together, but we're not taking sides. And then uh, Japan then as a result of the, of the Supreme Court ruling in Korea, Japan then put some uh, restrictions, uh, export controls, on some key strategic materials needed for the semiconductor industry in Korea. Though Japan uh, will tell you that, that the two are not related. You know, they, they, they did export controls for security concerns about Korea, not because of the Supreme Court rule. Be that as it may, the historical issues raised up to the level such that it became economic issues between the two countries. And still the United States said, hey, you, you need to work this out. We're not taking sides. And then Korea decided to put in play the GSOMIA, the G-S-O-M-I-A, which is an acronym for the Security Agreement, Information Sharing Agreement, rather, Intelligence Sharing Agreement, uh, to be precise, between Korea and Japan. And when that happened, then the United States, we got involved in a big way, because we said that Hey, you let a historical issue rise to the level of an economic issue, and now it's raised to the level of a security issue, which affects our security. 
And the State Department came out with a very strong statement. And you all know this far better than me. The State Department came out with a very strong statement that said that pulling out of the Jisomia by South Korea would make defending South Korea harder and place U.S. forces at risk. That's a significant statement. Ultimately, Korea did not pull out of the Jisomia. Uh, and, and that part of the, the, that upper level of the, of the three-tier thing that I've outlined for you uh, went uh, 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 moderated so far. now the economic issues are starting to, to bubble up again. And into this, China, PRC, and North Korea, they do happy dances together on this. When they see uh, Japan and South Korea at odds, and they see us at odds, uh, you know, this is a, an opening for mischief and bad behavior, and they're right in that space. So hope that answers your question. Um, all right, having just talked about the relationship between Japan and South Korea, um, Esther Sukhab asked if you could expand on what's the relationship between South Korea and Taiwan? Uh, it's a good relationship. It's, uh, you know, Taiwan uh, is not recognized by uh, South Korea. Uh, you know, they followed our lead in that regard, uh, I guess. Uh, but they, they exchange uh, uh, diplomatic offices. Uh, there's a Taiwan representative there in uh, Seoul, uh, uh, and their relationship is economic. Uh, I think they're they're friendly competitors. Uh, they they compete really hard uh, in the semiconductor space, uh, but uh, uh, you know they're friendly competitors. That said, uh, if China were to uh, uh, if the PRC were to attack Taiwan, uh, uh, RK uh, is under no obligation to help Taiwan. And uh, uh, we probably could not reasonably expect them to do so. Um, here's a question from uh, Ambassador Diana Lady Dugan. She said, Why has there been so little international attention or publicity about President Moon's harsh treatment and incarceration of North Korean defectors um, and an increasingly authoritarian treatment of anti communists in the South, especially since he has been a lifelong human rights leader? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and uh, it's it's something that I was asking, uh, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Kong uh, uh, before I left uh, Korea, and and others. This manifested itself most recently in the anti-leaflet law, you know, where there were South Korean uh, uh, human rights groups, in many cases led by uh, defectors from the north, that would launch these balloons, and these aren't party balloons; these are big weather balloon kind of things. Uh, that would carry uh, uh, you know, food, water, food, uh, Bibles, uh, uh, thumb drives, and things like that, and you know they would be blown into into North Korea, uh, and then taken by the citizens of North Korea to, to use. Um, South Korea outlawed that, and they started enforcing the 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 illegality of that. So human rights groups, 58 of them, by the time I left Korea. 58 human rights groups had had criticized the Moon administration. Ban Ki-moon himself, you know, former uh, uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, criticized the Moon administration for, uh, uh, for the decision uh, behind the anti-leaflet law. The U.S. Congress uh, 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 criticized it. So, you know, you have this odd thing where you have human rights groups, Human Rights Watch and the U.S. Congress together uh, agreeing to criticize South Korea, a key U.S. ally, on uh, the Sandy Leaf level. Uh, 
That said, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I think you're right uh, that uh, that is it's not widespread uh, because you know in America our attention span is is uh, uh, focused elsewhere. It's limited and focused elsewhere. But I think that there are enough. There are not enough. There are never enough. But there are lots of voices that are out there criticizing South Korea and the Moon administration for the decision. Uh, to uh, to run uh, counter to uh, their own uh, uh, progressive human rights uh, platforms. Uh, here's a question from Ambassador Tim Chorba. Uh, he says, in the Obama administration, a pivot to Asia was announced. Initially, it consisted of stationing a battalion of Marines in Australia. Has there really been a pivot to Asia, or has not the U.S. long been heavily invested militarily and diplomatically in Asia? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm personally invested in the answer uh, since I was a <laughs> commander before uh, I was an ambassador. And I think Dave Shear is on the line someplace. Uh, if, if the list of uh, participants that I was given is accurate. And, and Dave was the Assistant Secretary of Defense at the time. So, you know, he's, he's probably equally, if not more, positioned to answer the question. But I will tell you from my, from my vantage point, you know, first we had the pivot to Asia, uh, and then we had the rebalance to Asia. And, it, and, and this was certainly far more than just putting a battalion of Marines uh, in Australia. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Army upgunned the, uh, the, the level of the command structure in the Pacific to a four-star from the three-star and put in about 30,000 uh, more soldiers who were assigned uh, to U.S. Army Pacific. Uh, you know, we went to over half of the U.S. Navy's ships uh, were, including aircraft carriers and submarines, were assigned to the Pacific. So I think that the, the rebalance, uh, the pivot and then the rebalance was more than just uh, in name only. That said, where it fell short, in my opinion, and, and Dave uh, may have a different opinion, and uh, where it fell short was the resourcing. You know, we didn't resource it uh, 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 properly, in my view. You know, if, if you contrast it with Europe, we had the ERI, the, Econ the European, uh, uh, some kind, I don't know what the R stands for. It's an acronym, but an initiative the reassurance initiative, I guess, the European reassurance initiative. Uh, but that had money behind it. That had billions, single digit, but billions nonetheless, dollars behind it. The rebalance did not. Uh, and so just now, just uh, yesterday, uh, uh, the, the uh, Indo-PACOM commander, the guy who followed me, Phil Davidson, uh, he's, he's gone to Congress with a $22 billion package. And let's see if if we can put some teeth, some resource teeth behind the rebalance. But a great question, nonetheless. Uh, here's a question from Ambassador Christopher Landau, and he asks you, uh, how would you compare the foreign policymaking process in the Trump administration to other administrations in which you have served or observed? Um, Ambassador, you know, uh, that's, that, that almost uh, uh, asks me to uh, you know, the great former president's homework, and I'm not going to do it. Uh, I was not uh, uh, close to, to in terms of uh, 
uh, observing uh, uh, other administrations' foreign policy-making processes, like uh, was this administration's foreign policy-making processes since I was serving in the Foreign Service at the time. Uh, I, I will I will say that that uh, I complained when I was a PACOM commander. I complained mightily about the uh, seven thousand mile screwdriver from Washington to Hawaii that emanated from the National Security Staff, National Security Council. Uh, you know, I thought that the NSC was far too big and far too tactical at the time, uh, but. Uh, I will tell you that that I missed that screwdriver when I was uh, the ambassador to South Korea. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it was a titanium screwdriver that uh, uh, <laughs> reached out to me sometimes. So I, I think that that uh, you know, ambassadors will ought not to worry about the uh, the the. the the, how the policy making apparatus is executed, uh, but rather, you know, we're on the execution end of it. So we just gotta do what we're told to do and push back when, we, when we're told not to do something, but you know, that's just kind of where we are. Um, there's no more questions right now in the Q&A box. So if anyone in the audience has another question, um, you, you can enter it now. Um, um, otherwise, I'll turn it over to you, Ambassador Maisto, to uh, to wrap up. Well, it uh, has been a lively Q and A, <laughs> and uh, I thank you very much, Ambassador Harris, Admiral Harris. I can't help commenting that your uh, screwdriver response that you just gave is one of the coolest diplomatic. <laughs> answers that I've heard in a while. <laughs> uh, and it uh, certainly uh, makes a lot of sense for people who have been in the field and have also been in Washington. And uh, again, in closing, that's the strength that you brought to your diplomatic service. It's the strength you brought to your military service. And the fact that you have spent your entire life in public service on the military side and on the diplomatic side is uh, something we should be celebrating because we're living in an era when perhaps not enough attention is being made to such types of service to our country. So thank you very much. Uh, it was a good session. And um, let's see uh, what will happen in the future. Perhaps we can have you back in one way or another. Uh, but uh, we thank you very much for so quickly, so quickly <laughs> out, of your, uh, out of your embassy in, in, in Korea, having departed in January, uh, have made yourself available. Um, and who knows, uh, next time we talk to you, maybe We'll see a lot of the paraphernalia that you've accumulated over the years now. <laughs> so well, let me uh, let me thank you, Ambassador Maestro, for for moderating this, Kathleen, for running this, Jocelyn, for putting it all together, making it all work, uh, the whole team. Uh, I'm impressed with the Captain American Ambassador 
Uh, thank you for inviting me uh, into your uh, uh, your electronic living rooms uh, to, to share some thoughts. So really, thanks for the great question. Okay, uh, and now uh, Kathleen Joycelyn, we are ending the uh, technical uh, end of, of our event, and uh, we look to you to bring it to a close. All right. Goodbye, everybody.